Welcome to the Hidden Body Podcast. I'm Dr. Sarah Abetti. Thanks for joining me. Today, I interview Dr. Jason Fung. Dr. Jason Fung is a Canadian nephrologist. He's a world-leading expert on intermittent fasting with an emphasis for treating people with type 2 diabetes. Dr. Fung graduated from the University of Toronto and completed his residency at the University of California, Los Angeles. He works uh, and lives currently in Toronto, Canada. He's written three best-selling health books as well as multiple other books and has co-founded the Intensive Dietary Management Program. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Fung. Okay, great to be here. So I found something so interesting. You talk a lot about the frustration you felt seeing your patients not get better with conventional treatment. And it's interesting because you're a nephrologist and now you're in this world. Kind of how did you get started? So as a nephrologist, what I did was kidney disease. So what I saw was more and more type 2 diabetes, particularly in North America. Uh, as we had this obesity epidemic since the 1970s, which was followed very closely by this epidemic of type 2 diabetes, then 10 or 15 late years later, what you see is all the end organ damage, which includes diabetic nephropathy. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to see just lots and lots of diabetic nephropathy. And um, it, 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 you know, once you're in practice for a while, it strikes you that you're not really doing anything particularly useful. That is the focus we had on medicine, and this is true probably worldwide, was what medications to give to treat type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And from a kidney disease standpoint, there's really not a lot. There's blood pressure control, there's ACE inhibitors. So the last real drug with renal protection was ACE inhibitors, which were introduced in the 1980s. I mean, now we have SGLT2s, but clearly we were not doing a lot to prevent the progression of type 2 diabetes. And this is sort of tough to watch because I see it on a personal level. That is patients that I've been following for years that I care about, they were getting on dialysis, they were getting heart attacks, they were getting strokes, they were getting amputations, blindness, all the rest of it. And so... You know, I treated people much the same until about 2008 when a couple of landmark studies came out. There's the CORD and the ADVANCE and the VADT, which all pointed to the fact that lowering blood sugars did not reduce end organ damage. And that was a real striking finding at the time because up until that point for the last sort of 30 years, the entire paradigm of treatment was that if you lower blood sugars by mostly giving lots of insulin, you could prevent disease, but it turns out you couldn't prevent disease. It was doing nothing. And that's when I really started to get very interested in the question of how do you prevent type 2 diabetes and diabetic nephropathy? And really the name actually gives it away. If you have diabetic nephropathy, you don't develop it unless you have type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the key is really to reverse the type 2 diabetes. And at the time, of course, everybody was saying that that's not true. You can, it's chronic, it's progressive. You can't do anything. Once you get it, Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And all the diabetes associations said the same thing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we all knew it was a complete fabrication mm -hmm. because, and it wasn't just doctors, but every single person with diabetes knew that if you lost weight, that diabetes would either get better or go away. Mm -hmm. We knew that. Everybody knew that. Mm -hmm. So why were we pretending that it was chronic and progressive? The key mm -hmm. was to lose weight. And that's where I got interested in it. I started to really look at the paradigms of weight loss, which were very centered among 
uh, on calorie reduction. And uh, the problem with that is that there's actually no evidence that calorie reduced diets do anything to help reduce weight. That is, if we believe that we follow (laughs) evidence-based medicine, we've been recommending calorie reduced diets for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Where's the studies that show it works? Mm -hmm. In fact, there are zero. In fact, there are multiple, multiple studies showing that calorie-reduced diets work for about a year, Mm. and then they fail. And since this disease is a 15-year disease, losing weight for a year makes almost zero difference. Mm. And that's where I started to think that there's other ways to do weight loss that could be better, and also, uh, you know, how you could really sort of change the diet, because in the end, what we had done was we took this dietary disease, which is type two diabetes, because clearly it's not genetic. Everybody says Mm -hmm. genetics and this and that. Well, 50 years ago, this disease was a fifth of what it was today. So therefore it's not genetics. The genetics of the world have not changed. So Mm -hmm. forget genetics, like forget Mm -hmm. studying the genetics, focus on what you can do today to help your patients today. Mm -hmm. And that's where I started to look at uh, intermittent fasting, low carbohydrate diets. And in fact, if you look at low carbohydrate diets, they're, you know, five, 10 years ago, most doctors said, well, they're just, you know, they're fads, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look at it today, the American Diabetes Association says that there's more evidence for the low carb diet than any other diet that's out there, even Mm -hmm. calorie reduced diets. So it's, it's, it's changing slowly, I think. Mm -hmm. But I think that the, the key is that you can reverse type two diabetes using some of these intensive dietary strategies. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if you prevent type two diabetes from happening, you're not going to get the end organ damage, Mm -hmm. the heart attacks and the strokes. And and it's sad because the the problem is that as physicians, we've given up this entire field of medicine to Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and all these corporations Mm -hmm. and any you know, but it's, it's such a foundation of what we do. It, 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 it impacts, and everybody knows this, it impacts your rates of type two diabetes, which impacts your rates of heart attacks, which impacts your rates of stroke, impacts blindness, amputations, even COVID. Yeah. So every part of what we do day to day depends on getting people who are overweight to lose weight. Mm-hmm. So why are no doctors in it? And where the doctors that are in it are all like, it's all about the calories. It's like, yeah. where are the calorie receptors in your body? Like, tell me that. It's, it's, it's a complete, yeah. it, it strikes me as so incredibly unscientific yes. to say that, you know, it's all about calories. Well, a piece yeah. of wood has calories, <laughs> burn it, it has calories. So if you eat it, are you going to get those calories? Obviously not. Mm. So if two foods have equal calories, but mm. they provoke completely different hormonal responses, which we know is true, mm-hmm. you eat cookies and your insulin goes up, you eat uh, an egg and your, your insulin doesn't go up. So when you eat those foods with the same calories, you have a completely different hormonal response. How can you pretend that's irrelevant? Right. But we do. We yeah. say it's all about the calories. If you know that white bread spikes your blood glucose mm. and your blood glucose is too high, why do you pretend that eating white bread is the same as eating an egg for the same mm-hmm. calorie for calorie? Mm-hmm. Because it's not true. <laughs> the physiologic response is so well known, yet we pretend it's irrelevant. It's like, what are we doing? It, it, it strikes me as completely 
I just don't understand it. And, and yet you have educated doctors saying it's all about the calories. It's all about the calories. Yeah. It's all about the calories. It's like, no, it's about yeah. the hormones. Our entire body runs on hormones. Those are the chemical messengers that tell our body what to do. That is, if you create new fat, that is the novo lipogenesis, that depends on a certain hormonal milieu in the body. You don't get it with other things mm -hmm. like eating eggs. It doesn't, it doesn't stimulate de novo lipogenesis, whereas we know that eating white bread is certainly going to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, the whole field was, was just, you know, I just thought the whole field, they're looking at it from the wrong standpoint. And the problem was that all the physicians, all the researchers were all, all in on calories. Yet after 50 years, there's no data. There's yeah. like, like really, it's like, show me the randomized control trial that shows mm -hmm. that calorie reduced diets work because it's not like there aren't any, there mm -hmm. are many, mm -hmm. they are all negative. Mm -hmm. So why do you pretend that it works? <laughs> That's what I don't get. Like, are we just, you know. I can just, feel your passion about this. <laughs> it's strange. It's a strange I completely situation. Agree with you. I completely agree with you. And yeah, it's very interesting that you extensively talk in your book that obesity is really a hormonal problem. And you're kind of touching on that. And you, again, kind of go into the importance of fasting as a treatment for both obesity and type 2 diabetes. Why do you think it can be so beneficial for some of these patients? Yeah, the fasting is interesting because up until about, say, 50 years ago, everybody thought fasting was good for you. Mm -hmm. You called they people called it a detox, a cleanse, whatever you will. Mm -hmm. The point is that uh, after that, people thought that fasting was really bad for you based on no evidence, of course. Mm -hmm. And everything is situational. That is, you know, fasting is like a double edged sword, as is everything. It has the power to heal and it has the power to hurt. So if you're underweight and you're anorexic and you are 55 pounds, you should not be fasting mm -hmm. like you should be eating. That's mm -hmm. your treatment. Mm -hmm. But if you are a 60-year-old man with who is 400 pounds and has type 2 diabetes, then fasting is probably what you need to do. So why do we pretend? Again, I hear all this all the time, fasting, oh, you're going causing eating disorders. Like, yes, like for a 16-year-old girl who's <laughs> underweight, for an for a 60-year-old man who is 400 pounds, mm -hmm. I'm not causing eating disorders. Mm -hmm. I'm yeah. using it as a targeted treatment. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how do these people, like, they're so, again, so illogical. Because it's like, it's like saying, <laughs> chemotherapy, so bad for you. If you give it to a normal person, they will die. Yeah. Yes, of course. You don't <laughs> give it to normal people. You give it to people with cancer. It's yeah. a targeted treatment. Fasting yeah. is the same. Yeah. So it became this strange world where fasting was just bad for you, no mm -hmm. matter what. And we came up with all these reasons why, but you have to understand that fasting has been used for minimum mm -hmm. 2000 years because mm -hmm. it's used in almost every religion. So if mm -hmm. something bad were to happen with fasting and you are not underweight, Mm -hmm. then we probably would have known about it 2000 mm -hmm. years ago. We wouldn't be finding out about it, you know, in 2020. Mm -hmm. It's not like, you know, fasting is good for you for the last 2000 years and it's bad for you since 2020, right? It doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. Our body simply stores calories in certain forms. Body mm -hmm. fat is one way we store food energy, which is calories. So if you don't eat, your body is going to use those stores. Just mm -hmm. like if you put food in your refrigerator and you don't go to the market, 
Well, you're just going to take the food out of the fridge. Right. What's the difference? If you have no calories that you're eating, your body has figured out how to store calories and you're going to take it out of storage. But the point is with type 2 diabetes, with obesity, you have so much body fat, which is stored food energy, that it's making you sick. Mm -hmm. Just like if you have no room in your refrigerator, mm -hmm. what are you going to do? Well, you're going to stop going to the market and start mm -hmm. using some of the food in your fridge. Mm -hmm. Well, this is the same. If you stop eating, your body is going to use some of that blood glucose. Mm -hmm. And therefore, your blood glucose is going to go down, which mm -hmm. means that you don't need to take medications. Mm -hmm. Then if you keep not eating, you're going to use up body fat because that's another store of calories. Mm -hmm. And you're going to lose weight, which is great because obesity is a huge risk factor for cancer and strokes and heart attacks. Mm -hmm. So why would you not lower your risk with an intervention that is completely free, mm -hmm. completely available to anybody in the world, right? It's not just rich people who can do this. Mm -hmm. Anybody in the world can do this for free mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And it's natural. You don't need to take medication. So instead of paying thousands of dollars for diabetic medications, why don't you just fast and mm -hmm. save yourself the money, save yourself the time, and you can do it right away. And we've actually reversed so much type 2 diabetes with low-carb diets and fasting, because low-carb mm -hmm. diets have a similar pathophysiology. But I focus on the fasting. Mm -hmm. Why would you not do that? Mm -hmm. and least, As a medical yeah. profession, why, why are we pushing drugs when you're treating a dietary disease? You're using mm -hmm. drugs for a dietary disease and then wondering why you're doing so badly. Interesting. Because you haven't attacked the root cause of the actual disease, mm -hmm. and therefore you just keep giving more and more medications. Mm -hmm. Then people make excuses like, oh, people will never do it. It's mm -hmm. like, you haven't never told them to do it. Exactly. Like, do you think the Greek Orthodox people never fast? Do you mm -hmm. think the, uh, the Muslims never fast? Do you think Christians never fast during Lent? Do you think the Jewish people never fast during Yom Kippur? Mm -hmm. No. If you tell people it is healthy for them, they will do it. Not everybody but some people will do it. And that's their choice. Mm -hmm. You have to give them that information. And so when I started talking about fasting sort of uh, seven or eight years ago, it was, people thought it was like nuts. <laughs> and it was just the <laughs> dumbest thing ever. Um, luckily, the physiology sort of works out, plus yeah. the actual real results that you get mm -hmm. with people. Because mm -hmm. people always say, well, why don't you do a study? It's like, well, because I'm a clinician. Like, I'm too busy making study. results happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think there's a place for studies, mm -hmm. but the studies have to be done mm -hmm. by people who do studies. And mm -hmm. I'm not that person. Like, I can't do studies and be a clinician. Mm -hmm. I don't have, I'm not a researcher. Mm -hmm. I don't have that facility as I don't write grants, right? So it's a whole different skill set that I don't do. So mm -hmm. if people want to study it, that's great. If people don't want to study it, well... I will just keep treating people the way mm -hmm. I think that they should be treated and tell people that, hey, we should think about this mm -hmm. sort of thing because, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to go. I, I mean, honestly, what's the downside? Like people always say, Missed a meal. Okay, yeah, you miss a meal, you miss a couple of meals. But if you're 400 pounds with an A1C of nine and a half, what's your downside? Like, exactly. you know, everybody always so, so focused on, oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Just because of their prior, they, you know, they don't want to change their minds. They don't want to listen yeah. to new ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's like everything in medicine is a risk benefit. Mm -hmm. What's your risk? What's your benefit? Your benefit is that you can completely get rid of your type two diabetes. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's massive. Mm-hmm. Like that's absolutely incredible. Right. Life changing. Yeah. What's your risk? If you're 400 pounds with an A1C of 9.5, your risk is relatively low exactly. for missing a couple of meals. Mm-hmm. Like really your body has, you know, think about it this way. Your body, say, say you're at that weight, your mm-hmm. body has say 300,000 calories of food energy stored mm-hmm. as body fat and you miss a meal. So mm-hmm. you missed 500 calories, 800 mm-hmm. calories. Is that a huge risk? Right. Is you, are you suddenly going to die because of that? Likely not. Mm-hmm. Our bodies, like our, we, we haven't survived this long to be the dominant species by having to eat six mm-hmm. meals a day, mm-hmm. right? We can go for long periods of time. We, we see it all the time. Like people who do hunger strikes, people who do, when they used to study fasting in the 60s, they're doing 30, 60 day fast. Mm-hmm. Like they weren't dying. They were mm-hmm. doing fine. And they were actually probably not the people who should have been fasting. They're mm-hmm. actually normal weight or underweight. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about kind of how many ancient traditions have been practicing fasting. And you talk about a lot of people that would that would quote about how important fasting was, which I had never known, but your book was so interesting in that light. Um, Benjamin Franklin saying the best of all medicines is resting and fasting. Mark Twain saying a little starvation can really do more for the average sick man can the best medicines and the best doctors. Even Hippocrates talked about eating one meal a day and having that be a high fat diet. It's so interesting. It's you're absolutely right. We've been doing it for centuries and maybe the last 50 years, a different message of eat all the time. Cause maybe as you were saying, it might be more profitable. It's more profitable to eat breakfast, snack, bedtime, snack all the time eating instead of yeah, just taking a moment and maybe missing a meal. That's totally yeah, and the, the funny part is that as physicians, we actually fast people all the time. Yeah. So if you think about it, people who are pre-opting have to fast. If they mm-hmm. go for colonoscopy, they need to fast. Mm-hmm. If they go post-op, they have to fast. If they have pancreatitis, they have to fast. Mm-hmm. And so if you do fasting blood work, you have to fast. Yeah. So it's not like we hadn't been telling people to do it. <laughs> Yeah, you tell people to do it all the time. They're NPO, right? They're, yeah. they're, 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 so it's something we had done day in, day out, day in, day out. And yet somehow, when you take it out of the context of medicine and say people should fast, all of a sudden the doctors were like, oh, that's so bad for you. It's like, well, it's so bad for you. Why are you telling people to do it? Why are you telling people to do fasting blood work? Yeah. Like you could be killing them, right? Yeah. And, you know, you don't tell people to smoke. So yeah. you don't tell people to do bad things. So why are you telling them to fast if you thought it was really so bad? And the physicians usually un- almost always understand that it's there's nothing actually wrong with mm-hmm. fasting as long as you have adequate sort of body fat and so on, right? Mm-hmm. But you know, a lot of the other health professionals who 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 you know, who who sort of were brought up on this six meals a day they were very, very much against it and mm-hmm. without, without really understanding the physiology about mm-hmm. it. And I think that's where we need to change things and, and let the doctors uh, sort of say, let, like, let's think about it physiologically for a mm-hmm. second. What happens during fasting? Because we've known this. This is first-year medical school stuff. Mm-hmm. When you fast, insulin falls, but counter-regulatory hormones go up. So sympathetic nervous system is increased. Your growth hormone goes up. Hey, growth hormone going up. That's usually a good thing because Mm -hmm. you're going to increase your rebuilding of bones and muscles. Sympathetic nervous system and noradrenaline going up. Hey, you're going to be energized. You're not going to be tired. You're going to have more energy, not less energy, because that's just physiology. 
cortisol goes up, but that's a stress hormone and fasting is a stress. And everybody says, is that bad? It's like, well, exercise is a stress too. Mm. Nobody says exercise is bad for you, although it can be in very large amounts. But the point is that this is a very stereotyped physiologic response. Mm. And what's bad about it all? Well, nothing. I mean, you have more energy. If you have better concentration, your, uh, you know, your growth hormone goes up. So you're going to protect your lean mass, protect your bones, mm-hmm. right? What's, what's the bad part of all this? Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be hungry. Yeah, that'll probably be true, but that's not going to kill you. The mm-hmm. hunger doesn't kill you mm-hmm. as long as you have adequate stores. And then as your insulin falls, again, stereotyped response, you're going to use your glucose. You're going to break down hepatic glycogen then you're going to go into lipolysis, which is breaking down fat. Mm. Well, that's good. If you're using up your blood glucose, your blood glucose will go down. Burning up your hepatic glycogen, mm-hmm. using up your you know, fat, you're going to lower uh, fatty liver, which mm-hmm. you can completely reverse with, with fasting. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to lose weight. So what's bad about that all? Maybe 150 years ago when there's malnutrition and undernutrition, that's bad. Mm-hmm. But in this world that we live in, most of that is very good. Mm. And in fact, the word itself, breakfast, it's the meal that breaks your fast, which means that you actually have to fast mm. in order to break your fast. So mm. we intrinsically knew that there's a cycle here of feeding and fasting. You feed, you store calories, you fast, you burn calories, mm. keep them in balance. And all of a sudden, with no scientific basis whatsoever, we said we should not have a feed fast cycle, we should continually feed and fasting is bad for you. Mm-hmm. Well, you've thrown off that cycle. Okay. It's not that feeding is bad for you. It's that you should feed and then you should fast and mm-hmm. then you should break that fast. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden we said, no, feed all the time, never fast ever, even if your blood glucose <laughs> is high. Even if you want to lose weight, you should eat six times a day. It's mm-hmm. like, how's that going to work? Mm-hmm. If you are always eating, mm-hmm. How are you going to lose weight? Because the minute you eat, blood glucose goes up, insulin goes up, and insulin, we know, inhibits lipolysis. Mm -hmm. That is, you can't burn fat when insulin is high because insulin is a storage hormone. Insulin tells your body, nutrition's coming in, store those calories. You don't burn those calories. Mm -hmm. So if insulin inhibits lipolysis, why would you want to stimulate insulin all the time? Mm -hmm. In fact, you don't. You want insulin to fall Mm -hmm. so that you can allow lipolysis to happen Mm -hmm. and you can burn that body fat. So, you know, everything is completely physiologic, but, you know, the the, the minute you you start talking about these things, people sort of shut down. And then a lot of the doctors are like, well, I'll leave it to the dietitians. And and unfortunately, uh, that that message is slow to get out. the results sort of speak for themselves. I mean, I have so many physicians who write me and said, wow, I could never lose weight until I actually started to do a bit of fasting. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and people um, are reversing their type two diabetes. They're like, wow, I got off all my insulin. Mm-hmm. It's like, wow, that's fantastic. That's mm-hmm. what we should be doing as physicians. Exactly. Getting people off of their medications yeah. uh, as opposed to seeing what medications to prescribe. Exactly. And that's the whole problem I see. And hopefully it, with education, physicians can get back to what their real job is, which is making people better, right. not prescribing medications mm-hmm. necessarily. Like there are medications that are good, but mm-hmm. it's, 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 it's just about how to make people better. And mm-hmm. if diet is the root cause, then fix the diet. 
I love it. I love it. Wow. Thank you so much for breaking that down for us. And I, I find a lot of you kind of touching on this, you know, people's concerns about fasting. And honestly, before I read your book, I think I didn't know these things as well. Um, but people might say, you're going to go into a starvation mode. You're going to burn muscle. There's going to be low blood sugar. You're going to overeat later. You're going to deprive the body of nutrition. Is any of that true? Not really. I mean, if you look at the myths, and I don't even know why, but so starvation mode is a very common perception, misperception. And what it is, is that they think that your body goes into this um, mode where you burn fewer calories. So if you're eating less and burning less, you're not going to lose body fat, which happens on low calorie diets. We actually know, like we've known for about 100 years, that low calorie diets, if you eat six times a day, you know, high insulin foods, high carbohydrate foods, if you reduce your calories and focus on the calories, what happens is that your body burns fewer calories than the weight loss stops. That's why every single calorie reduced diet in the history of science Mm -hmm. has failed long term. Mm -hmm. And we know why we know exactly why that's that sort of reduction in basal metabolic rate. But that doesn't happen during fasting because, again, the hormonal change is what's important. Mm. As your insulin falls, your noradrenaline, sympathetic nervous system are increased, which tends to increase your basal metabolic rate. So they've done studies of fasting. They take people and they fast them for four days, measure their resting metabolic rate. In fact, when you measure it at day zero and day four, the people on day four, so four days of zero to eat, Mm-hmm. And they're actually burning 10% more calories wow. than they did at day zero. Wow. And the point is very simple. Suppose that you have 500,000 calories of mm-hmm. body fat, okay? And you have no access to it because your insulin is high. Remember, insulin blocks burning body fat. Insulin mm-hmm. inhibits lipolysis. So you have no access to it. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, your insulin falls, you open the floodgates, and you say, hey, there's 500,000 calories of body fat sitting here. Why does your body need to reduce how many calories it burns, the 2,000 calories it burns? It has like a year's worth of fuel sitting there. Mm -hmm. So the point is that fasting, by changing the hormonal uh, sort of um, balance of the body, allows you to access that fuel that you can't if you're eating all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's why you don't necessarily go into uh, sort of starvation mode. So the studies show it very clearly, and we know exactly why. The physiology is all black and white because this has been worked out for over 50 years. Mm -hmm. The other thing about burning muscle is another very uh, sort of big misconception because when you fast for sort of longer periods, around 16, 24 hours, you get into this period called gluconeogenesis where your glycogen has run out and you're burning, uh, you're, you're using protein to generate glucose because you haven't gotten into the fat burning quite yet. So people said, wow, you're burning muscle. But what they don't understand is protein is not necessarily muscle. There's a ton of connective tissue and skin and all this other stuff. Overweight people, if you look on average, when you look at studies, they have about 50% more protein Mm -hmm. than normal weight people. So it's not just that they have too much fat. They also have too much protein because you need all that protein, all that connective tissue, all that uh, skin, all the blood vessels to support the body fat. So you actually need to burn it down. In fact, what you get is this period of autophagy where you actually are breaking down proteins during fasting. And people recognize that the autophagy is actually a very, very beneficial thing. Because when you break down those proteins, but your growth hormone is high, 
when you need the protein afterwards, you're going to rebuild what you need. And that's one of the reasons we actually see this very interesting phenomenon in our clinics, which is that we have far less problems with excess skin than other people. So we have people who lose 100 pounds and they don't have, they don't need to go for surgery because the body has probably metabolized a lot of that excess protein. So when you do gluconeogenesis, what happens, of course, is that your body just breaks down protein, but because growth hormone is high, whatever protein you do need is going to get rebuilt. So, you know, if you, if you know, this, the, the point of this whole burning muscle thing is rather silly because the body stores energy calories as glucose, right? Glycogen, blood glucose, and body fat. You'd have to be crazy to think that we designed our body that as soon as we don't eat, we leave those stores of body fat and glucose and burn protein, right? Why would you do that, right? If you stored it as glucose and fat, you're going to burn it. Sort of like if you store firewood for the winter, and then as soon as it gets cold, you chop up your sofa and throw it in the fire. Like, why would you do that, right? How would you have survived if we did that? And the answer is we, we, we don't do that. And a lot of studies have shown that lean muscle, uh, like muscle doesn't necessarily go down. I mean, everybody's different, of course, but uh, in general, it's not something that you have to worry about. Mm-hmm. In any case, the, you know, muscle does not grow because of what you eat. Mm-hmm. If it is, we'd have an epidemic of muscularity, which we don't the way you grow muscle is you expose it to stress. That is you lift heavy things and you grow muscle. If you go up into space, an astronaut, no gravity, their muscle deteriorates very fast. If you put somebody on bed rest, their muscle deteriorates very fast. Mm -hmm. So it's not what you eat. You can feed somebody in bed as much as you want. Mm -hmm. They're still not going to maintain their muscle mass Mm -hmm. because there's no stress on that body. Mm -hmm. So now we sort of start to sort of go, Oh, well, building muscle is no longer about, lifting heavy things. It's about what you eat. It's like, wait a second. If I want to build muscle, I can't just eat. Like it doesn't work that way. If you want to lose, if you lose muscle, it's not probably primarily because of what you ate again, unless you're malnourished. So those sort of myths are just like, they're so out there. They just get repeated. So they get, they get sort of uh, assumed to be true. Mm-hmm. when there actually is no scientific basis mm-hmm. for that sort of sort of thing. And, and, you know, a lot of these things like hypoglycemia, again, you don't, you don't get hypoglycemia unless you're generally on medications, mm-hmm. except in rare cases. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about people who fast for say religious purposes, and this is literally billions of people mm-hmm. for the last hundred years, like we don't see an epidemic of hypoglycemic reaction. Like the, the 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 emergency rooms are not overrun with people. <laughs> like every time there's a religious fasting thing, like during say Yom Kippur, you don't see like the overrun emergency rooms during Lent. You don't see during Ramadan. You don't see these you know a huge lineup of people with hypoglycemia. Like it doesn't happen. So these things are really just meant to scare people and you really have to go back and think, well, if your body doesn't have enough food coming in, then it has stores of food and it's going to use that. It's, it's okay. You got to trust the system. You got to trust the process because that's the way it is. Just like if you have 
uh, you know, a, a fridge that's full, a freezer that's full, and you don't go to the supermarket for one day, mm-hmm. like it's okay. okay. It's okay. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry about it. Right. Same thing. If you have body fat, yeah. If you don't have body fat, that's a totally different story. If you have lots of body fat, then yes, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's very interesting. You talk about kind of the advantages of fasting. You had touched on how it can actually improve like mental clarity and concentration, but there's also a whole host of other things. Um, you know, you kind of talk about in your book, uh, lower blood cholesterol, prevent Alzheimer's, extend life, anti-aging, decrease inflammation, healing the gut. Can you kind of touch on that and why that could, why that's happening? Yeah, a lot of it is um, more theoretical, some of the ex- life extension and so on. So a lot of that is actually related to calorie restriction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in animals, and it's a lot of animal studies there. But uh, on the other hand, there's certainly, we know that um, if you lose weight, if you reduce type two diabetes, you're going to, it's going to be associated with all of these uh, benefits. Mental clarity is a super interesting one, because it's not immediately intuitive why mental uh, clarity improves. Although if you look at studies, they do. So you look at studies of memory and concentration and so on. What you find is that when you fast, it actually, your, your, your mental acuity actually significantly goes up. Mm-hmm. And the, the thought is that it's again, due to a lot of those counter-regulatory hormones, where if you're, uh, you know, if you're, sympathetic nervous system is heightened, then you're going to have more clarity. So just like think about like a uh, hungry wolf, it's a very dangerous animal, right? It's, it's, and, and, you know, the hunger makes it much more dangerous because it's more zoned in, it's able to focus and it's ready to, you know, run. It's not like lethargic and unfocused, right? That's not what a hungry wolf is. Um, So the idea, if you think about it, is that if you uh, are not eating, like if you're a caveman or cavewoman, and there's nothing to eat, if you suddenly became lethargic and mentally unfocused, you would you, never survive because you don't eat for a day, you're gonna, it's going to be harder and harder to catch food. So your body's simply not that stupid. What it does is it switches your fuel source to stored fuel, which is body fat, and it increases your energy right? By increasing sympathetic tone, that's your fight or flight response. It increases your mental acuity and it gives you the energy and the focus to go out there and get food. Mm -hmm. That's the whole point. So now we live in a world, of course, you can just go to the store, but if you want to sort of hack that system, you can, because you can increase your mental acuity, mental focus and energy, like physical energy by fasting. Uh, And what's interesting, I think, is also you see it in all kinds of uh, unusual places. So there's a a biography called Unbroken um, about the Japanese um, prisoner of war camps in World War II. And these Americans were in it. And he was writing about it. And he said, so he said, what what I thought was very interesting about that is one part where he talks about, they're literally starving, they they have almost nothing to eat. And they go, and he he talks about his, his fellow prisoners, who are doing incredible things. He says, there's a guy who's reading a book entirely from memory. There's a guy who learned Norwegian in a week and is a, you know, just doing these incredible things. And he goes, that's just part of the astonishing mental clarity of starvation, 
And, yeah. and it was just one of these sentences that he noticed because everybody was doing such incredible things yet starving. And it's like, wow, that's incredible that people notice this over and over again. Pythagoras, the ancient Greek mathematician, would fast before exams. He would require his students to fast before coming to class so that they would be able to learn. You know, and, and that's totally opposite to what we think now, which is that we need to give our kids food all the time in order for them to learn. Right. It's like, no. You don't, unless they are literally starving, then there actually is no reason you need to. Um, so, you know, some of these benefits are just incredible. So then you take the autophagy, the story of autophagy. So autophagy is this process where your body sort of breaks down protein at a certain point. So you break down subcellular organisms, sorry, organelles. And uh, initially, it, you know, people thought, well, breakdown, that's not good. But the point is that that's the first process of rejuvenation. You break down the old junky stuff, you replace it with new stuff because growth hormone is high. So it's this intracellular recycling system where you break down old stuff and build new stuff. And that's great. So this, this whole idea that you can rejuvenate your body, that you can actually get younger and, you know, prevent aging, it all starts with the breakdown of proteins, not the building up, because we think it's all about building up. But no, it's all about breaking down. Mm -hmm. That's the first step. Just like if you're to renovate, you know, your bathroom, the first thing you need to do is gut it. Mm -hmm. It's not putting more stuff in, you don't put old stuff on new stuff on top of old stuff, you got to get rid of the old stuff. And that's the process of autophagy of breaking down that old stuff. And that's why it's so beneficial, as long as it's followed later by good nutrition and eating, right? So it's a cycle, feeding and fasting. It's not about feeding all the time, and it's not about fasting all the time. So all of these benefits, so then you think, okay, if you can break down proteins, well, can you prevent things such as cancer? Possibly. I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting data there. Uh, can you prevent things like Alzheimer's disease, which is, again, this excessive buildup of protein. And again, there's a little bit of data, very interesting, but very preliminary. But mm -hmm. can you do that? Because we don't have any good treatments for that right now. Mm -hmm. So the, the idea that you can sort of use this free intervention that's been used for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course, that these diseases are not going away. Mm -hmm. They're actually increasing quite a lot. So cancer, Alzheimer's disease, both of these diseases are on the rise. Mm -hmm. So if you can do this sort of simple free intervention, then why not? Mm -hmm. Like, why can't you? Uh, and that's, that's the promise of, 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 of uh, you know, what, what we might be able to do. Mm -hmm. And that's, thank you for explaining it like that. One of my favorite parts about your book is how you still talk about you know, when you go to Italy, you're going to have that pizza. You kind of, you still in those times where, you know, food is love and, you know, part of the culture, you still, you know, enjoy it and, you know, enjoy those aspects of life. And if that happens, you just talk about how, when you come back, you may just do a little bit more fasting. And I feel like that's very difficult in these other diets that you have to very strictly adhere to them where we don't really realize a large part of you know, this food is culture and people showing their love. Um, and then you also talk about how it's important when you are not fasting to break that for the most part, the majority of the time with healthy food. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, mostly unprocessed food. Mm -hmm. So most of what gets us in trouble, truthfully, is the processing of foods. 
And it's not necessarily just the carbohydrates or just the protein or just the fat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that uh, process, like there's lots of cultures who have eaten lots of carbohydrates, mm-hmm. like uh, Chinese people ate a lot of rice, for example, and they were pretty uh, slim until the sort of 1990s. Um, so it's, it's, it's more than that. You really have to focus on not just the, uh, amount of food, but also the quality of the food. Uh, and I think that we get into trouble sometimes by just trying to categorize foods in terms of their macronutrient percentage. Like, you know, this idea of tracking macros is I think sort of destructive because it reduces nutrition to sort of three things, carbs, fats, and proteins. But honestly, there's a lot of ways you can eat a high carbohydrate diet and keep your serum insulin low. So for example, in these studies in the Catavans, which is a South Pacific Island, they're eating about 70% carbohydrate diet. Their serum insulin was lower than, you know, 95% of the reference Swedish population. And this was in the 90s. And the Swedes are notoriously slim, right? So it's not like these were, were you know, huge people. These were slim people. And yet these Catavans eating a super high carbohydrate diet still had serum insulin levels much lower. And it's because they weren't eating all the time. And it's because they were eating unprocessed foods. So unprocessed foods, like, and they're eating a lot of root vegetables, for example. Um, they might have the ability to keep you really full. So if you eat boiled yams, for example, then you might not want to eat again, which means that's fine because you're going to take sort of that energy, but because you're not eating, you're going to use that energy and you're not going to keep it as body fat. It's only that imbalance of calories going in. That is the problem. And for, for the most part, unprocessed foods have a natural limit to them. You can't eat boiled potatoes. You can't just keep eating boiled potatoes. You, you get full very fast. Right. Uh, as opposed to something like white bread or something made out of flour, muffins, for example, because of the way it's processed, the flour is ground very fine. Um, you know, you take out, strip out all the protein, you strip out all the fat, and what you're left with is pure carbohydrate, which is ground very fine, so it's absorbed very quickly. So you eat a muffin, your sugar spikes very quickly, your insulin spikes very quickly, then it leaves, and then you get hungry an hour and a half later. We all know that happens. Like, everybody's sort of experienced that. But if you wind up eating a lot of that, you wind up eating all the time because Mm -hmm. you're getting this constant cycle of spike and crash, spike and crash. Mm -hmm. Whereas a natural carbohydrate like beans, they don't do that. You don't like eat a big plate of beans and then feel like you want to eat more beans an hour and a half later. It just doesn't happen. Um, So it's, it's, you know, this sort of nutritionism, I think is very dangerous Mm -hmm. to, to, you know, so that's why people say you should eat a low fat diet or low carb diet or high protein diet or whatever it is. It's like, no, I think you've missed the essential point, which is that foods have to be evaluated uh, on a more sort of holistic level. Mm-hmm. And f- the easiest thing is processed versus unprocessed. Mm-hmm. If you're eating very processed foods, it's probably not very good for you. Mm-hmm. But if uh, you know, you're eating even high carbohydrate foods, um, but you're eating them naturally, you're, you're making sure you're not snacking all the time, mm-hmm. you have a proper fasting period, you could probably do all right. So you have to make sure you maintain that good nutrition because that's what allows you to do the fasting 
uh, easier. And, and it's both. It's both the things that you eat and also how, how often you're eating them. Mm-hmm. Both of them are very important for weight loss. You mm-hmm. can't do one without the other. That is, that's where a lot of diets get into trouble. They say, eat a low-fat diet. And then people eat like constantly because they're eating muffins, low-fat muffins. Mm-hmm. And they're eating sort of every hour and a half. Yeah. It's like, well, that's how we get into this idea that mm-hmm. you should eat breakfast. Then mm-hmm. like you look at the kids, breakfast, mid-morning snack, lunch, mm-hmm. after school snack, dinner, and then snack in between the halves of soccer. All of a sudden you're eating six times a day mm-hmm. and we're telling people it's good. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, so if you're constantly putting calories into the system, mm-hmm. when are you going to take them out? Mm-hmm. Because if you don't, yeah. that's a one-way system that eventually leads to obesity and it doesn't develop in a year it develops over like 10 years which is why these studies that do you know four days and they say oh look low-fat diets do better we did a week mm-hmm. and people did better like that's that's useless it's it, your time scale is all wrong you can't look at it it's like saying okay you know look i put this piece of metal in water for four days and it didn't rust so therefore water doesn't cause rust it's like your time scale is all wrong yeah it takes years to develop rust. So why are you looking at after four days? Yeah, we do the same thing. Obesity develops. like It's like a pound, a pound and a half per year is what the average weight gain is. Mm-hmm. So people do these week-long studies and they say, look, low-carb diets are the best or they're the worst. or the, I don't know what it is, but it's like you can't tell anything from a week-long study. Nice. Like it doesn't make any sense, right? And, and yet they get all the sort of all the news and they get the promotions and they become like the thought leaders. And then all of a sudden, before you know it, everybody's promoting a low fat diet Mm -hmm. since like through the eighties and nineties before deciding that, Hey, the fat actually wasn't that bad for us. And that took another 20 years to sort of debunk the original idea, Mm -hmm. which debunked the original idea that we should just be eating natural food. (laughs) Just to kind of close it off. If you kind of have to give, a little advice to our medical colleagues or maybe someone new in medicine, what would you kind of hope that they, what would you want to tell them? What would you hope that they could kind of gather from all this? I think that um, the main thing is sort of to keep an open mind Mm -hmm. because we get into this, these fights of, you know, dogma, like calories, it's Mm -hmm. all about calories in calories out. And it's like, well, you know, it's, it's a, it's a failed paradigm. So we should get past that, but there'll be other, other ones. So you always have to keep an open mind into it. You always got to see sort of where the rubber hits the road. Like, does it actually help people? Because mm. if telling people to cut their calories, count their calories and cut their calories, if it doesn't work, and we know it doesn't work because mm. we've done it for so long, mm. then don't stick to it because <laughs> Obviously, the, in the real world, it doesn't work. If, mm. if, if, you know, you can have a beautiful theory, but if it doesn't agree with the real world, then it's, it's, you got to trust what you see. And, and, and then that's one of the things you have to sort of, uh, sort of keep learning and keep listening because, you know, you get people who come up with different ideas like I do. And I think I try to follow scientific principles like physiology and evidence-based medicine. Um, but at the same time, the minute, you know, some people might say, oh, fasting is terrible. It's, a, it's, it's just quackery. So, but, but then you have to really evaluate for yourself. Is it really like, yeah. you know, maybe just listen a little bit because 
maybe there's there's an idea there, maybe not the whole truth, but at least it moves you towards the truth uh, a little bit. And that's that's one of the things in medicine that we're not very good at. That is, we tend to get we tend to circle the wagons. So if it's you know calories is the sort of prevailing idea of the day, everybody defends that to the death. Even if it means that their patients are dying, yeah. even if it means that they're they're suffering all the consequences of type two diabetes, they people won't listen because they're like, no, that's not part of the orthodoxy. Therefore, they won't listen to it, even when there are ideas there that may help their patients, and that's a tragedy because that's not what we're supposed to be doing. So I, I hope that people will sort of keep an open mind to to some of these ideas, listen to them, and see what sort of science there is behind them, they can decide for themselves. But to dismiss ideas out of hand that are just not part of the orthodoxy, like you have to understand that that's how science advances through sort of new ideas, discussion, not, oh, this is a new idea, therefore it's wrong, which is (laughs) usually what comes up. Like, you know, uh, you know, like keto is a very popular diet. And of course it got slammed like crazy. But there are some people who do extremely well. So mm-hmm. if you just dismiss it out of hand and circle the wagons and say, well, you know, keto's a fad diet without really trying to understand what it is about it that has helped some people, then you could be doing your patients a real disservice because you're not offering them a choice. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm not necessarily a keto diet proponent. I don't really actually think that... Um, this sort of focusing on macronutrients is useful, but some people have done very well on it. And what's the big deal? If somebody does it for six months, does really badly, then they can stop. Mm -hmm. If they do really well, then they can continue. If they get off their diabetic medications, why do I care? Like they're obviously healthier. So why do I care? So it gets to this point where physicians and medicine in general is more worried about being right than about helping patients. And that's the wrong idea because fasting is the same. Mm -hmm. Suppose somebody does it. Well, they do horribly. Then they stop. (laughs) So what? I don't care. Neither do they. They tried something. It didn't work. Why would I, why would I get so upset about it? Mm. Or a low fat diet or a vegetarian diet or whatever diet you want to do. Like I have people who do all kinds of stuff, Chinese medicine and all acupuncture. I have people who do all kinds of stuff. If it doesn't hurt them, then I say, sure. You want to do it? Go for it. Tell me how it goes. If they do great, great. If they don't do great, I say, don't waste your money anymore because it didn't work for you. That's the point. Like there's so many interventions that are like that, like these wellness interventions, like stuff. Uh, Sure. A lot of it could be placebo, but the placebo effect is real. So in the end, you got to say, like, how am I going to help my patient? Not about, I'm going to be so dogmatic about following the science. And remember, that's not following the science. That's just being closed-minded. Mm. Science always, like, is not afraid to, to ask questions. That's why you have these ideas, like, in Twitter, where it's like, oh, it's misinformation. It's like, mm. science is about <laughs> misinformation and throwing out the ones that are wrong and keeping the ones that are right. Like, if... Galileo was here today and he was like, oh, this or Copernicus is like, oh, the 
the, the earth moves around the sun, the sun doesn't move around the earth. He would have been like banned on Twitter because it would have been misinformation, right? It's the same, you know, it's, it's heresy. Yeah. So it's this idea, this sort of uh, silencing of critics and stuff. That's the real danger, not that there are quacks out there because there's always quacks out there. There's lots of people who have different ideas and I'm okay with that. Yeah. It's the diversity of ideas that's important. Once you start cutting down the diversity of ideas, that's when you get into real trouble because mm. some of the craziest ideas sounded really stupid to start with. I mean, so many, so many things came out of uh, nowhere. The ketogenic diet for, for seizures sounds stupid. Like it really sounds stupid, right? It worked. It saved a lot of kids, right? For epilepsy. So, so don't dismiss these. Like always keep an open mind and just remember that science is about questioning. So anytime you try and shut something down, that's actually what anti-science is. Beautifully said. Wow. (laughs) Dr. Fung, where can we find you? Uh, You can go on my website, which is Mm -hmm. thefastingmethod.com. On Twitter, I'm on uh, at Dr. Jason Fung. And you can also find me on YouTube. I have a number of uh, free videos for people on all kinds of topics about fasting and reversing type 2 diabetes. And that's on YouTube. Just look under Jason Fung and you should be able to find them all. Perfect. Great. Thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you for joining me on this week's The Hidden Body. It's been a pleasure to have you. Until next time. Please consult the appropriate medical professional before starting any fast, especially if you have any underlying medical conditions. This is a space for educational discussion and should not be taken as medical advice. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. Please talk with the appropriate medical professional for any medical questions regarding your health.